Welcome to the Think Christian Podcast, where we believe there's no such thing as secular, even the music of Four Town. I'm Josh Larson, editor over at thinkchristian.net and your host. Four Town, of course, is the fictional boy band that is beloved by the main character of Pixar's Turning Red. Now, was Four Town inspired more by NSYNC or the Backstreet Boys? I'm afraid we don't have time to get into that contentious debate. We're going to talk about Turning Red, which came to Disney Plus earlier this year for another reason. In the context of a new book from one of our regular guests here on the podcast, Michelle Reyes, and her co-author, Helen Lee. Together, they've written The Race-Wise Family, 10 Postures to Become Households of Healing and Hope. It was published just a little over a week ago, and it's a rich resource for anyone helping to raise kingdom-minded kids who love God and their neighbors in all of their diversity. As for Turning Red, it's a refreshingly diverse entry in the Pixar filmography. It follows a 13-year-old Asian-Canadian girl named May as she contends with adolescent changes, both biological and cultural challenges and changes which threaten, among other things, her chance to see her favorite boy band in concert. I can't wait to talk to both Michelle and Helen about the movie and about their book. First, though, a quick reminder about our free Stranger Things ebook, Grace in the Upside Down. As we mentioned on our last episode, we've compiled a collection of essays and original illustrations on the first three seasons of the Netflix series, all in anticipation of season four, which is right around the corner. To get that ebook for free, just go to thinkchristian.net slash stranger things ebook. That's thinkchristian.net slash stranger things ebook. And that Stranger Things episode of the podcast where we discuss the ebook, in case you missed that, you can find it over in our podcast archives. Those are at thinkchristian.net slash podcast. For now, let's leave the demogorgons behind and turn towards something cuddlier. Pixar's turning red. I get to welcome in two guests for this conversation, both friends of mine, but I was late in realizing that they were collaborating on a book project, The Racewise Family, 10 Postures to Becoming Households of Healing and Hope. Now, regular listeners know Michelle Reyes as she's a frequent collaborator and contributor to the TC website too. Michelle's co-author is Helen Lee, who was the wonderful editor of my own book many years ago, <laughs> Movies Are Prayers. So welcome to you both. Thank you so much, Josh. So good to be here. Yeah, excited. So from what I know of you both, this book is really a natural pairing of experience, um, personality, talent, and subject matter. But I do want to hear, because I was, you know, a little surprised. This I realized this late, as I said, Helen, how did you connect with Michelle? And then how did this whole project come together? Yeah, it's been fun to tell the origin story. I feel like each time we tell it, we kind of discover new things about it that the other person may or may right. not have <laughs> realized. But long story short, you know, I had written a book called The Missional Mom like 11 years ago. And I briefly in that book touched on the topic of race and ethnicity. And I always kind of had this sense that ah, I wish I had more time that barely scratches the surface. And so I had kind of that angst inside me that uh, there needs to be a book written, a larger book written for parents, for Christian parents on the topic of, of race, but just didn't quite have the motivation, didn't quite have um, the right, I don't know, energy, I suppose. But I know I knew the need was out there. And of course, we've seen over the last 
few years especially, I mean, it, of course, the need has always been there, but in particular with just the rise of the ways that racial unrest and racial incidences have been splashed all throughout the media. It became even like a bigger and bigger need. So anyway, long story short, I knew of Michelle and Michelle's work, but we had never gotten a chance to get to know each other in person until we both ended up at a conference for Asian American women run by Vivian Mabuni, our mutual friend, who had invited both of us to be there as speakers. So it was delightful to meet Michelle in person and Literally not long after that, maybe, I don't know, a few months after that, Michelle, I can't remember exactly the timeline, just felt the sense that the Lord was saying, reach out to Michelle. I mean, there might have been a dream involved where her name (laughs) popped into my head. I I don't want to get too spooky here, but, um, you know, I'm not someone who necessarily, you know, remembers my dreams, but I remembered Mm. her name and reached out to Michelle, said, this is kind of a crazy idea, but would you like to collaborate with me on a book on this topic? And the rest is history. She obviously said yes, and here we are today. So that's, that's the story. Right. That's right. So, I just recently learned about the dream. So I, <laughs> oh, I am, really? I am yeah. for the dreams. <laughs> God I love speaks that. Through dreams. Yeah. That uh, I wish I got signs like that more often and made things clear as which way to go. So yeah. So Michelle, tell me what it was like writing with an editor as a co-author. <laughs> Helen and I were talking about this briefly before you came on. You know, I know her as an editor, obviously am aware of her being an author herself as well, but that brings two different viewpoints to a project sometimes when you're both writer and editor. So, you know, writing this alongside someone as an editor, basically what I'm trying to get at here is how did you guys split up these duties? You know, because a co-project is its own kind of animal, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, I've also had 10 years of editorial experience, too. I've served as editorial director in um, different capacities and organizations. So I felt like Helen and I were immediately kindred spirits Mm. (laughs) because we were like working through concepts and also editing ourselves at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think just the way in which our brains worked, the collaboration was really fun and actually easy in, in that sense because we got on the same page very quickly. But, you know, it's it's a book that has 10 chapters, 10 postures, if you will. And we uh, divvied up, you know, half and half who took the lead on what chapter and then would just exchange it and, and you know, fill in blanks or revise and edit as, as needed. But, you know, it, it's an interesting process writing, a, co-authoring a book, right? Because mm. In the process of co-authoring, you start to really get into another person's mind and okay, you think that, and do I think that? <laughs> and like, how do we how do we express this in a way that reflects both of our voices and mm-hmm. our stories? But I just I felt like uh, and, and and maybe this is through rose tainted colored glasses, Helen, <laughs> but I I felt like it was just it was super easy to write with you. <laughs> yeah. So it was it's been a joy and and just a really fun project and I'm super excited for for this book to come out into the world. Well, it works really well, I've got to say. And as you're describing it, Michelle, it seems, you know, in retrospect maybe the most natural way to do a book on this topic is mm-hmm. because it's all about making room for other perspectives and experiences. So what better book to have two people who share some of those experiences, but also have very unique stories to tell and perspectives to bring. So I think it works really well. At the very top of the show, I describe the book as a rich resource for anyone helping to raise kingdom-minded kids who love God and their neighbors in all their diversity. But you both probably have a better way of summarizing the project. So what's sort of the quick summary you've been giving 
to people, Helen, to describe it when it's a new idea to them. Yeah, I, I love your description. I want you to write that down and send that to me. <laughs> I may to, need to use that in, in future interviews. But yeah, I, I think of it as hope, hopefully the aspiration was to create a biblical and theologically sound resource for Christian parents to equip themselves and their children with how to be race wise. And I think that word wise is a really important word. It's a biblical word. It's an aspiration I think that we all want because there is a lot of talk and conversation about this topic of race and some of it not as helpful and some of it challenging. So we really wanted to bring that framework. We really need to pray and ask for God's wisdom in this because it is a tricky topic. It's contentious in the church, maybe more than it really needs to be right now. And it's fraught with, I think, a lot of peril for some parents who don't know how to talk about it. You know, I, and for me too, I, I certainly am not a perfect expert and I feel like I'm still learning. I learned even throughout our process of writing this book and from Michelle and from others. So trying to just set the table for a very um, inviting resource that hopefully people will feel like will entertain their questions and give them safe space to ask those questions and to wrestle with them. And I know I have not given a very good elevator pitch, so I need to work on that. <laughs> but... That's I think, helpful. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'm going to pass it over to Michelle and ask her to do a better job because I just, yeah, I just <laughs> rambled right on. That was not no, 30 seconds. No, I think that's, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head, Helen. And what what I share is that it, it's a practical handbook, really, that empowers Christian families to engage issues of race in, in, in a biblical way. Um, because I think those are the two things that I hear parents just longing for is like, what does scripture have to say about oh. these race-related issues, whether it's a, a, a tragedy in the news or it's police brutality or it's the question of privilege. It's like, okay, what does God say about this? Mm -hmm. And how do I explain this in very age-appropriate practical ways to my six-year-old, to my 10-year-old, to my 15-year-old? And so our goal or our hope is that parents could actually take this to the dinner table in the midst of having a conversation and say, okay, here's the definition, here's the Bible verse, and here's like an activity or a prayer that we can now do as, as a family. So it's inherently practical. Like you could feel like you could begin applying things same day as, as reading. Uh, we got all these fun appendices with prayers and a film and movie guide, uh, definitions uh, and, and more. So theology and, and practice, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that's sort of the nutshell of our book. Yeah, and there's a real matter-of-fact approach to it that, you know, it goes a little bit back, Helen, to what you were saying about learning as you go as well, mm -hmm. that I think is welcoming for families and speaks to that practicality too, Michelle, because yes, for not very good reasons, this is a difficult conversation to have within the church and maybe within our own families. But if you step back it really shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. And I did appreciate the matter-of-fact tone you guys bring to it. Both of your voices, even though they're distinct and you can get a good sense of who is speaking to me when, both of you are like, um, let's just do this. And it's mm -hmm. and if you and that's I mean, as a parent, I found that is these things that are in your head is these huge, difficult moments. If you just start, it mm -hmm. becomes a lot easier. It doesn't mean it's always easy, but it's kind of that let's just do this. This is yeah. what we're charged to do as parents. And you make it not intimidating to mm. have some of these conversations, which is what I appreciated. And you were mentioned, you both mentioned, you know, sort of the biblical foundations for the the book and these postures, these 10 postures that you guys do present. 
Can I? Can you give me an example of maybe you know one of them in sort of where you look to in the Bible that led you there? Because mm-hmm. the way you were describing it, Michelle, is is very right. Is that that's our instinct as Christians? We're trying to wrap our minds around something. That's where we go. What guidance do we have here? And some topics, it's more difficult to find that in others. But as you guys were looking for these postures, is there just to give people who are learning about the book right now an example of one of those and where mm-hmm. you kind of turned? to get an understanding of what posture should be taken. Yeah, I don't mind starting, and I'm sure Michelle will have more to add, but I'll just start even from the very first chapter, which is on valuing multi-ethnicity, and that's a word that we chose intentionally because there's a biblical root word in the middle of multi-ethnicity, which is the Greek word ethnos for nations. And that word um, is just throughout Scripture. Um, You see God's intentions for utilizing all these different ethnic groups, all these different people, groups that he created. And that's an intentional choice. He made us distinct and unique and different on purpose. And what you see over and over through scripture, and we're heading into the season of Pentecost. I mean, this is like the perfect time to talk about Pentecost because that story in Acts 2 is, I think, an amazing reflection of how God values multi-ethnicity and uses it to further his kingdom and his mission. So, of course, in Pentecost, we see that wonderful story of how the early church, they were waiting for the gift of the Spirit, and it comes to them through the gift of language, right? It comes through this incredible, distinct, cultural distinctiveness of language. And as all these disciples are speaking in languages that they don't actually know themselves, all these other Jewish believers who are there in Jerusalem for Pentecost start hearing their own heart language, their own heart cultural language from whatever distinct cultural place they come from. And as a result, they become believers and thousands more become believers. So we see how God uses the value of multi-ethnicity and leaning into honoring, recognizing and honoring and celebrating those ethnic differences for his kingdom witness. So that's one example of how we see just, it's so clear in scripture that God did not create us to be people who minimize those ethnic differences, which Mm. I think sometimes is our tendency as Christians. We want to try to, you know, not even recognize them. That's actually not what God does. And and we see that over and over in scripture. Yeah, that's, that's so good. I'm going to piggyback off of that to talk about uh, posture two, which is seeing color. But I think just as a um, a side note to that, I think even going through the list of God's character, the mm. uh, the the words that describe God is also a great place um, in thinking through how His character relates to issues of race. And, I, and I'll, I'll combine that in a second. But I think you know, for so many Christian parents who were raised to be colorblind, there's mm. this confusion now of like, wait, I thought that. Being colorblind was like the new and healthier way forward for race relations post-civil rights era. Mm. Now you're saying I need to see color and I don't understand <laughs> which one am I supposed to, where, mm. how am I supposed to approach this? And, you know, I think it's okay to acknowledge the his, the well-meaning intentions that came from that historical moment, right? That, that the term colorblind was borrowed or inspired, if you will, from Dr. King's 1963 I Have a Dream speech about you know, he wanted his children to be judged not by the color of their skin, but by their character. And mm-hmm. so I think there then became this whole group of folks that were like, well, well, yeah, we don't want to judge people by their skin color, not make that defining or essential to, to divisions or hostility. But then I think the unintended consequences that fo- folks who strove to be colorblind also became blind to the lived 
realities and experiences of ethnic minorities. And so in this attempt to, to not see color and to treat us all the same, uh, people's racialized experiences of everything from microaggressions to uh, police brutality to racial profiling, you know, kind of just got swept under the rug. And so all of a sudden then, that commitment to being colorblind was communicated to you know folks like Helen and myself as like, I don't see your pain or I don't mm. want to see your pain. And so I think the way that this translates to seeing color is that we have to understand that seeing color is the portal into people's lived experiences. And, mm. and I guess I'll say this as well. Like I am obviously more than the color of my, spin, my skin, but I'm no less than my pigmentation. Uh, and this, I think, connects to God as El Roy, the God who sees. We mm. see that in Genesis 16, 13, that he sees, first of all, he created us in this vibrant diversity. He created the world, including people, to be technicolor, and he declared that was good. And God, as Elroy, sees us in our skin color, our pains, the beauty of our culture. Uh, so in many ways, we have to know that God's heart is for this multi-ethnic, as Helen mentioned, multicultural people. He sees us in this way. And if we, as parents and as children, want to see people the way God does— then we have to see in color without sliding back into any form of segregation or disunity. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, color, there is a color in the title of the film that we also want to talk about, Turning Red, notably. I think that's on purpose. And you mentioned, Michelle, that there is an appendix to the book that lists for different age groups, different types of media, really helpful resource. Again, um, films in particular, one category are films that would be good for families to watch together and kind of prompt some of these conversations. So we thought, well, maybe we'll pick one of those to talk about. But then we did have Turning Red recently come out from Pixar, and it seemed like a fitting opportunity to talk about the film in the context of the book. It stars, or the main character, I should say, is uh, May, a 13-year-old Asian-Canadian girl who wakes up one morning to find she's transformed into a giant red panda. The vocal vocals here are done by Rosalie Chang as May. So the movie struck me, tons of different interpretations uh, to this film, and most people, I think, approach it as a parable of some sort, seeing a lot of symbolism in <laughs> some of the story beats and the colors. Uh, it struck me as a parable about, about learning to have a healthy relationship with your emotions, most generally, whether you're experiencing puberty. I mean, the panda is a pretty clear metaphor for menstruation. <laughs> or whether you're burdened by generations of familial repression, as we mm -hmm. see in May's mother, who is voiced by Sandra Oh. So a lot going on here. Some of it is intense stuff. Again, those conversations you you know you have to have with your kids, but you maybe aren't as excited about. Um, that's some of the things that this movie tackles. And I think that's to its credit, you know. Um, it is still a Pixar family film. Uh, and so as your book is geared towards families, before we dig into all of those sort of implications and thematic things, I just want to hear uh, how this movie went over with you both in general and your families, maybe, mm. if you did happen to watch it with your families. Michelle, why don't you uh, get us started talking about Turning Red? Yeah, you know, we loved it. We watched it that Friday morning right when it uh, released on Disney+. Plus. And uh, so I have a seven-year-old son, three-year-old daughter, and we one we were just dying laughing <laughs> throughout the film. I think there was something about all of the representation of Asian culture 
there's Asian jokes, and we got them all. And we just, we were dying laughing. But there was, one of the things that stuck out to me was the fact that at certain points, my son would just resonate with what Maymay was doing. And he'd be like, that's me. <laughs> mm. Or there'd be parts where her and her mom were butting heads. And he'd be like, hey, that's like you and me, mom. <laughs> and I just, you know, I thought it was so interesting because even though he's a boy, he was really connecting with the story. And, and so in that sense, even though it's a mother-daughter relationship, there's a lot for for any kid to uh, particularly Asian children to to relate with. And so I found it so interesting that in the days and weeks following the movie's release, there was such a divide in response to Turning Red. And in many ways, it was a division of Asian versus non-Asian mm. communities. Everybody that I talked to that was a fellow Asian American loved the movie, loved the representation, loved the issues of assimilation and cultural expression. I think that's another one of the parables or parodies, if you will, of the panda, as the mother mentions, is that, you know, all of these women in in China used to be pandas, but then when they came to America, it became inconvenient. Mm. And so they had to let go of or hide their pandas. And so there's this level of the red panda as, um, learning to to process and control your emotions and puberty. But then there's another deeper level mm-hmm. about cultural assimilation. Uh, at the end, you know, she's like half panda, half human, which I think is such a perfect uh, representation of like mixed kids, bicultural kids, kind of foot on both sides of, of, of the fence. And so versus, I think, non-Asian communities that felt like This was a movie with a threatening message. It was encouraging rebellion, potential paganism going on. And uh, and I was like, I didn't get any of that from this movie. Uh, And so I think also in moments like this, it is important if your family is not represented in the ethnic makeup of the movie you're watching to kind of have a radar for how people of that ethnic heritage are responding to that movie. And that's something I kept telling people, hey, Asians love this movie, and perhaps a first starting point is to ask why. What is it that's that's generating so much love and and, and energy from from this community, and and maybe lean into that before being quick to to judge or or reject it. Helen, you were nodding along when Michelle was talking about it as an assimilation parable. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah. Because that is, to your point, Michelle, that is you know not one of the first readings. That came to me. Mm. Obviously, I don't have that experience. I don't have that background, but I do love hearing that reading. And, you know, we'll probably look at that as the prominent one now when I watch mm. Turning Red again. But mm-hmm. yeah, maybe say a little bit more about that, Helen. Yeah, I'm happy to. So I I watched this by myself because my teenage boys were, <laughs> were not interested <laughs> in watching a movie that had at the heart of it the uh, 13-year-old girl. Not a target Although, market, right? So yeah. yeah. I mean they love they love Shang-Chi. We could talk about that too maybe another time, but um, uh-huh. but yeah, so this I watched by myself. And so, you know, because of that, for me I caught not just the that tension of of trying to deal with like handling your emotions, but that intergenerational tension, boy, that hit home mm. for me as mm. someone who has always struggled with how to, how to honor my parents, like the number one rule, as she says, as May yeah. says in, at some point in the, in the movie. The number one rule in my family, honor your parents. They're the supreme beings who gave you life who sweated and sacrificed so much to put a roof over your head, food on your plate, 
an epic amount of food. The least you can do in return is every single thing they ask. Um, because that for me is, is so a uh, lived experience, like tension with family over some of these cultural dynamics at times. Hmm. And so for, for me, when when the main character, when Mei comes to the end and she is able to find a way to integrate this panda part of her identity with the human part of her identity. Yeah, I love what you said, Michelle, that there's you can think of it as a potential reading of kind of a bicultural identity. You can also think of it as trying to as like hold those two things in tension at the same time, which is what so many of us as people of color do here in the majority culture that is in the United States of America. We have to figure out how to both navigate typically majority white spaces. And I know that's changing and the demographics are moving and shifting. But for many of us who are adults anyway, many of us are living and breathing and working in spaces where we might be in the minority if we are people of color. So finding a way to not have to stuff my cultural identity deep down and hide it, <laughs> but finding a way to feel like comfortable expressing it, discussing it, naming it, articulating it, making it visible, like that for me hit home. I mean, even though we're mm-hmm. talking about a character who's a 13-year-old girl, I felt like, wow, that spoke to me because I I still struggle with that as uh, an Asian American, often in Christian spaces where I am in the vast minority I find myself often suppressing like that aspect of me, whether I want, sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's subconscious, but I'm like fighting that cultural battle, I think all the time, that identity battle. And so this film in a lot of ways just portrays, I love how it portrayed May's journey and how she was able to do something different, right? Than all mm-hmm. of her other maternal figures and say, no, you know, I'm going to chart a new course and find a way to celebrate this part of who I am that's so special and distinct and unique. I'm going to celebrate that. And I love that message. Mm-hmm. Well, you both made a good argument for why Turning Red should be in the appendix as well. I know the mm-hmm. book's published, so, you know, yeah. maybe too late to too late to add it, but definitely is falls in that category. How about if we take the, the Think Christian angle and mm-hmm. add that on top of this or interweave it with it? Because as we've made the case as well, this is very much a, a, a big biblical prerogative to look at race in this way. Mm-hmm. One example over at the Think Christian website, Kate Myrick wrote about Turning Red, and she saw the movie as, here's another lens, an example of Pauline parenting advice. Mm -hmm. So within the context of Ephesians 6 about, you know, honoring your father and mother, but also about not exasperating your children, which I thought was an interesting angle. So that's over at thinkchristian.net. But yeah, as far as for you two, if um, if you guys are looking at this and seeing how it resonates, not just with the cultural aspect of your book, but also the Christian prerogative for this. Did anything in Turning Red kind of emphasize, despite the pagan parts, you know, those those really frightening <laughs> pagan parts, anything else kind of resonate for you alongside your book? Oh, man. Well, you opened up that can of worms, Josh. I have, I have to piggyback on what you just said, actually. Uh, I want to talk about the whole issue of potential paganism in the, sure. in the Let's um, do it. movie, because I think that— when it comes to Eastern storytelling, people, we are so unfamiliar with Eastern storytelling in the U.S. American context. It is so foreign to us that any sort of spirituality within an Eastern story feels like a threat, feels like paganism. And I think on the one hand, there is this uh, hypocrisy that we have towards magic because uh, I think oftentimes these same evangelical Christians, they love 
Lord of the Rings and, and Gandalf the White, you know, he's cool. Elsa from Frozen with her magical hands, she's fine. You know, call it a shaman with a, a, a sword with a beautiful red ruby on it. And now it's like paganism. And mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, my son, <laughs> when that moment came where they're they're in a circle and they're chanting and they're trying to like separate Maymay from her panda and the shaman holds up his sword, my, my son was like on the edge of his seat. He's like, this is so cool. <laughs> like He was just <laughs> enraptured by this moment. But I think actually when it comes to, so I think there's that, just acknowledging there is this double standard for Eastern mm-hmm. versus Western magic. But I think on the other hand, the spirituality in the movie is something we should pay attention to and something that Helen and I talk about in, in this book, The Racewise Family, um, something I talk about in my first book, Becoming All Things, is the, the inherent spirituality in our cultural identities. In fact, when you look at Revelations chapter 7, you see in the new heavens and the new earth, people of different tribes, tongues, nations around the throne of God, worshiping him for all eternity— their cultural identities still exist in the new heavenly reality. And it shows that there is something divinely intentional about how we express ourselves culturally and our faith. And I think particularly for this current generation that's unchurched and de-churched, and we have such a such a limited understanding of the spiritual world that stories mm-hmm. like Turning Red can actually sort of give us a reimagination for the ways in which the spiritual and the material come together. And so the fact that she's entering into this spiritual state in a bamboo forest and she has to like come to this deep reflection of who she is and then then realizes, no, I want to keep my panda, I want to keep my cultural identity. I think that is a reflection of, of where we are or should be in our own faith journeys as Christians is understanding the beauty of our cultural identities and the inherent spiritual dimension behind it. And so I, I thought I would just piggyback off of <laughs> the, the the question of paganism, because I think that was such mm. a big fear for so many parents. And yet I think mm. for us as Christians, that is what scripture shows us. And, and, and we need to lean into that spirituality, even though it has this Eastern flavor. And I'm like, come on, Jesus was Eastern, right? Like the Bible is Eastern <laughs> storytelling. Like this is not something to fear, but rather it gives us a different revelation of God that's important and we need to pay attention to. That sequence in the bamboo forest is is just beautiful. I mean, mm-hmm. beautifully envisioned in terms of the animation, but yeah, story-wise doing all those things you're talking about. So does does much of that track for you too, Helen? What Michelle's talking about there? Oh gosh, absolutely. I was when I was thinking about some of those critiques of the movie along the lines of what you're both talking about. I mean, I, the first movie that came into my mind was just Star Wars, the whole entire, <laughs> whole entire Star Wars. The, uh, the force is, uh, yes, you know, right. not exactly orthodox is what you're suggesting. Oh, right. Exactly. Like we're, we're, we have no problems with like the pantheism of the force and we're having all this, you know, hullabaloo about turning red. Well, and it makes me think of uh, trying to see if I can tie this back with your original question about parenting and, and some of the direct there, when I think about the ways that parents and children can uh, be in tension with one another, often, and I see this in Christian parents all the time, um, and I think it's relevant to our topic of race as well. I think there's so much that Christian parents fear, right? There's like, they don't want bad influences on their children, whether it's pagan worship potential or whatever it might be. They often want to protect their children. You see this too in the movie, right? That's Mamie's mother is absolutely yeah. about trying to protect 
her daughter. And so it's motivated by this deep root. It's motivated by love and concern for children, right? Whether we're talking about the characters in the movie, whether we're talking about Christian parents. But there is that element of fear, right? Fear of damaging somehow your child or fear of bad influences somehow in your children. And with this topic of race, I think there's a lot of fear in the church too, where Christian parents are just fearful of CRT, you know, critical race theory or anything right now that even touches on the topic of race and ethnic identity. And I want to point to, you know, is it Second Timothy chapter one, where we see this wonderful line from Paul that God does not give us a spirit of timidity, right? Mm. He gives us a spirit of love and truth and power. And so much of what I see sometimes in Christian parenting, and I, I've been guilty of this too, is reacting out of fear. And I just want to remind Christian parents, and hopefully our book helps parents understand that we, we don't have to live in a state of fear when it comes to talking about issues of race and ethnic identity. And that, in fact, is what leads to this exasperation that parents can sometimes have with their children that we're instructed as parents not to do in Ephesians. Yeah. So that was my attempt to try to tie all these things together. I don't know if I succeeded, but... I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Huh? <laughs> and and it, it, you know, it, it echoes the conversations I have more in terms of discussing pop culture sometimes mm-hmm. with parents. The, yeah. the posture too can be fearful rather than mm-hmm. discerning. And I think there's a, there's a mm-hmm. distinction there, which is another topic for another day, but mm-hmm. it, it echoes kind of what you're saying in, in, are we going to approach these things instinctively out of fear. I mm-hmm. don't know that that's always helpful. And and maybe the case you're making, it's maybe not biblical either, Helen. Mm-hmm. So this has been great. Thank you. We will have to find a way to do this again <laughs> before your guys' next book. I don't know what that would be. <laughs> you probably don't even want to think about that at this point. But uh, I had fun, so I'd love to get together and find something to talk about. But really, all the best with the RaceWise family. It's a real model for for how to be a loving Christian in a beautifully diverse world. So thank you for writing it and for being here to talk about it today. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Josh. It's been a pleasure. Take care, okay? That will wrap things up for this episode. Again, The Racewise Family is now available wherever books are sold. Some other movies that Michelle Reyes and Helen Lee list in that appendix, which you might want to watch with the kids in your life, Hoop Dreams, Minari, Smoke Signals, and Selma. So, a nice list there in addition to Turning Red for Family Movie Night. We will be returning to our regular format for next episode. We'll also have a theme as we like to do. This one should be interesting, Patriarchy. So, to get ready for that, you might want to give a listen to the new Florence and the Machine album and check out the recently released movie, Men. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. We are at Think Christian. Over on YouTube, you can find a video version of the show as well as other video content. Just search for the Think Christian YouTube channel. And if you want to keep up with the articles that we post on the Think Christian website, sign up to receive emails from us at thinkchristian.net slash subscribe. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported program of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit ReframeMinistries.org for more information. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy. That's Robin Best. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back together again in a couple of weeks to consider how another aspect of our pop culture fandom connects with our faith.